Uh, look at a couple levels in the indices that you should be keeping an eye on. Let's bring in Kurt Nelson. He's joining us this morning from Summerhaven. Kurt, good to have you back. It's been a bit. Thanks, man. Thanks to you, crude, this morning. WTI uh, above 87, as OPEC considers the biggest production cut since the pandemic. Yeah, I think uh, it's quite interesting. It's the first meeting that OPEC is having in person in, I think, about two and a half years. And uh, it's not just OPEC, right? It's OPEC plus. So uh, Russia will actually be attending this meeting. And when you look at how much production they uh, collectively bring to the global markets, it's a big number. Out of 100 million barrels a day that we produce globally, they represent somewhere around 30 to 40 percent combined. Saudi Arabia alone is 10 million barrels a day. And uh, I think the fact that they're meeting in person um, suggests to me that this is not just about what's going to happen in October 22. Um, my guess is there will be some strategic planning should the uh, U.S. economy, Europe, other parts of the world move into a recession and see weaker demand, they'll probably be working on an action plan to continue to support and prop up prices uh, you know, over the longer term as well. So I think it's actually very significant that they are meeting in person. Um, we have also heard whisper numbers of anywhere from 500,000 barrels to, to 2 million barrels a day. I think any cut is significant. Um, I think another kind of overnight uh, development is that the EU is, seems to have come together and decided to try mm -hmm. to enforce a cap on Russian oil prices. It'd be difficult to enforce. I think the U.S. supports this. Um, and I note that just because Russia will be at this OPEC plus meeting um, in Austria. Um, I think the, the challenge there to determine whether Russian oil can have its price cap will be, will India and China participate because they're taking a lot of it on right now. You know, one thing I'm hearing about, uh, it's one, uh, obviously, easy to establish uh, uh, production cuts ultimately, but to get some of the enforcement and uh, to get some of the uh, member nations to go along with that, as you pointed out here in terms of Russia meeting, I hear the UAE is actually set to support these cuts. Uh, you, wide range, to your point here, 500,000 to 2 million here. And this comes with the SPRs at their lowest levels in decades. I mean, you've got the Biden administration. They've got to be very nervous about this, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, listen, we, I think the, the Fed and the Biden administration are probably breathing a sigh of relief that oil has come off from, you know, 120, 125 down to the mid-80s range. Um, there's been some release, uh, relief at the gas pump for consumers, and that's coming into the, you know, election cycle in November, uh, midterms in the United States. So um, I think uh, that sort of softening prices coming into the Q4 has been helpful for the Fed as well, as they've been wrestling with how to get inflation under control. Um, that said, uh, I, you know, if you saw the core inflation numbers that came out last week, you know, energy is coming down, but other parts of the economy are showing um, strong inflationary signals, whether it's, you know, labor, other aspects of the, the calculation that goes into CPI globally. So um, I'm not sure to, I don't know, you know, it's hard to predict, you know, OPEC only knows what number they're going to announce. It could be some type of shock and awe number, though, to kind of, you know, lift crude back into a, a 90 handle or maybe even get to $100 a barrel in, uh, you know, in six months. Um, I think what's more significant to me is that they are showing um, some cohesion. And so if after they announce these cuts, if we see good compliance among the member nations, right, there's often cheating. Um, you know, they announce a cut, but then you know, maybe the output cut isn't as, um, as committed by certain member countries as by others. 
Uh, I think that maybe what we'll see over the next month or two is maybe even more important than just the, the raw announcement today. Um, but the fact that they're holding together as a group and they're committed to strong, uh, supporting a strong oil price, I think gives a good floor for oil. Um, and uh, because they represent such a huge portion of the globe's uh, production, um, I think it matters a lot. I like that, Kurt, in terms of because we had heard, uh, well, in past meetings, there was some bickering kind of back and forth in terms of, and uh, it does sound like, again, to your point earlier, as far as this meeting, the first in-person meeting in two years, a little bit more conformity here and a little bit more kind of coming togetherness, it seems like. Also, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the U.S. dollar. I mean, when you're talking about crude prices on the move higher, uh, back up to near this $90 barrel level, I mean, uh, a factor to consider there is the U.S. dollar, which has come from that uh, 115 level back to 110. Yeah, it's, the dollar's been strong. We've been raising interest rates maybe ahead of a number of other you know, major developed countries around the world. So dollars are attractive, right? You're earning more in your cash. Uh, so we've seen a lot of, of dollar strength. And as you know, Ben, uh, most global commodities are priced in dollars. So all things being equal, uh, without any changes to supply or demand, mm -hmm. um, if the dollar becomes stronger, each dollar will buy more of each commodity, right? It's this sort of algebra. So um, uh, we, we can see in the short term that the dollar strength could lead to some, um, some headwinds to you know, price appreciation in you know, the major commodities. I think our research has shown, though, over time that that correlation or that connection is pretty weak. Um, so it, it's more of the short-term impact as it is long-term. Um, I, I do think that, uh, as you mentioned, the strong dollar, I mean, I think that this trend is going to continue. The Fed has, uh, like OPEC, right, uh, you know, confidence and conviction in what they say and what they do is, is everything to them. And we all like to try to predict what the Fed's going to do, where will interest rates be, where is inflation going to go. Um, uh, but I think that we can take the Fed at their word. They are going to fight inflation if it continues, and it has been continuing. It hasn't been transitory. So I think higher rates for longer is something that we're all going to have to live with. We heard that from the RBA, the RBNZ this week as well. Uh, uh, Governor Lau uh, made that very clear for the most part that we're not done yet. And, and it does seem like uh, New Zealand said the same thing basically this morning. Um, talk to us a little bit about the gold trade, because uh, back up above 1700 a swift move from 1620 last week. And I'd imagine you could chalk most of this up to the dollar. Are you seeing anything else that's kind of driving demand right now and, and the uh, run-up we've seen? Rates coming off, obviously, supportive of this move as well. Sure. I, I think to some degree we can think about the playbook that we've all used for the last 20 years. I think gold is a great preservation of wealth tool, and I think many allocators use it that way. Um, it's, uh, there, there's the old story that 300 years ago, uh, an ounce of gold could buy you a nice wool suit, um, uh, a pair of leather shoes and a, a dinner in a nice restaurant. I think that's probably still true today. Uh, you know, um, it's, uh, because it's, it's not a fiat currency, it's, it's, a um, an element that you can't manufacture except by extracting it from the ground and storing it. It's often used as a as a way to preserve value, and particularly during inflationary times. Um, it's also used as a risk off asset. So, uh, what we saw in uh, 08, 09, uh, we saw it um, as as the COVID crisis started to hit the U.S. and and global markets in spring of 2020. Gold is a reactionary trade for for many investors. On the headwind side. Um, because it's like an alternate cash, uh, it, it does not produce a yield. 
So uh, when interest rates in the United States are zero or, or 25 bips, there's no opportunity cost to holding gold. I think that um, these persistently higher rates of return on cash that investors um, can earn will be a competitor for gold as a uh, safe haven asset, um, depending on what develops in the financial markets. Um, I think that may be, I think this reactionary trade towards gold tends to be in these more steep corrections. And we've seen you know, strength, you know, we saw a rally yesterday in the stock market. Um, broadly though, if you take a step back and look at what's happened year to date, we've seen commodities up about 20-ish percent uh, year to date, 22. Um, stocks are down about 20, 25%. And so if you have a gradual sell-off, I think that that support for gold will not be uh, very sharp. I think it may be slow and steady. But if we see a big correction in markets, um, then I think that that'll be a strong rally signal for gold, despite the strong dollar and despite the, the strong uh, cash interest rates. Kurt, lastly, could we get a quick thought on copper? I've been kind of looking at it as uh, yeah. that sort of level-headed approach towards some of the uh, heightened speculation and unease that we've seen in terms of markets and participants uh, as we head into the fourth quarter here. Copper seems to be very much range-bound and, uh, again, sort of just waiting for that next catalyst, but sort of suggestive of what we've seen hasn't been it yet. Sure. I guess um, what I would like to say about copper is I think it suffered along with a lot of industrial commodities. The, again, we're playing off of a playbook from the last 20 years. I entered Wall Street in 95. We haven't had this type of potential inflationary-driven recession since the 70s, right? So this is basically we're off the map for most of our living experience if you're on Wall Street today. And I think the expectation that there could be a recession, that the Fed could be aggressive and you could see the, the ECB and other countries joining in that, uh, maybe the Bank of England, as, as rates need to come up and we need to arrest um, this steep inflationary increase across many of these global economies. If that leads to a recession, there's a, um, a, a an expectation among some uh, traders and investors, well, there's going to we're going to do um, we're going to see demand destruction. We're going to see industrial output fall. Demand for energy will come down. Demand for metals will come down. And so I think that's what's led to this kind of maybe 30% softening in metals prices and copper is one of those over the last few months. But behind that, you have to look at what drives supply and demand in, in these commodities. They're not fiat currencies, so you can't print copper. You can't print oil. You can't print wheat. Um, you can do that in a currency or in a stock or in a bond. And so what I would highlight is if you look at the inventories at the Shanghai uh, London Metals Exchange and, and CME combined, um, about a year ago in the summer of 21, that was maybe 400,000 uh, metric tons uh, in exchange-approved warehouses. So it doesn't include shadow inventory. We can't see what's in private warehouse stocks, but the exchange has published this data. That's fallen by about 150,000 metric tons to call it 250 today. So while we've seen this softening price, we've seen um, you know supplies get reduced to levels that we haven't seen since before 2000. Okay, so that's um, so the setup is quite interesting um, for metals broadly, and um, uh, just a reminder that that that. Although prices are, are soft, um, we, we have huge sources of new demand for copper and for these other metals with electric vehicles, renewable energy, yeah. the Inflation Reduction Act. So um, I think well, stay tuned. I think that's going to be an interesting one for us to talk about this fall.
Definitely lots to talk about in terms of the bigger picture discussion here as well. As far as some of the intraday price activity, it does seem to be coming back a bit, but still relatively contained. Kurt, I always appreciate you joining us here. I hate to cut you off there. We just had the ADP number come out here as well. We wanted to get that in before the break. Kurt Nelson joining us this morning from Summerhaven to talk commodities. Speaking of ADP, it came in at 208000 Checking in again, one of our first uh, looks here at the numbers here, expected Friday again, uh, obviously a more full heavier focal point towards the data due out later in the week. But ADP, again, as you can see, coming in at 208,000, a little bit higher than expected. It looks like they were estimates for 200,000.